welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about modern Chinese history, uh, looking at how China came to be the way that it is today, and we are looking through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from about 1839, working our way forward. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Just a few beginning announcements. I'm hoping to try to get up to 100 page subscribers to start doing supplementary episodes. Um, you can join the Substack for greater connection with the podcast, and uh, if you want to support for free, you can rate and review me on all platforms where you can find me. Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, others. Um, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you want to join the Substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. And working on building the community, so if you'd like to get involved, please reach me at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Okay, so in preparing for last week's episode, I found some priority material for looking at in the main thread of this podcast. Uh, the develop so the the we're looking at developments in China as it evolved toward what it is today, and kind of the theme that we're looking at is the handoff from Confucian scholarship as primary and needing to prioritize technical. Uh, technological competence um, in state bureaucracy. Like a lot of the leaders of China today, they have education as engineers, they appreciate technology. Um, you know, so, you know, uh, writers like Sun Tzu, you know, the art of war, military strategy, political thinking, all that, that was all very well developed. That wasn't a problem. It's not like Chinese thinking is somehow backwards. Uh, a lot of the, like, it, it's not that they didn't have the brain power to move into the modern world, uh, but it's the, the real question was the magnitudes of difference in performance between different styles of governance and the employment of technology. Um, politics is kind of sociological software, Upgrades are resisted by interested parties, you know, people and relationships being the hardware. So if I, if it's not in my interest to change the way that I do, if I'm going to lose a lot of wealth, it doesn't matter what happens to my country, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Um, so the the key thing that China was needing to navigate was the transition from agrarian to industrial civilization. So if you go back to high school uh, history, the the handoff from hunter-gatherer to agrarian society means that more people can specialize, so instead of just you carving a spear to hunt when you need from time to time, you can spend all your time carving spears and you can get really, really good at it. And instead of finding sharp things, you can invent new sharp things. And things like metallurgy can emerge. And you know, so 
because agriculture produces so much more food than you can just gather, then you can build whole industries. Well, in industry takes it up yet another you know magnitude of productivity. So consistently reliable tenfold production, let alone a hundredfold, uh, you know, improvement on previous technology. Okay, this is what you're looking at. And China was a very big, powerful country at that time, but there was a whole other level of refinement in the products of Britain. Like one of the things we're going to see today in this episode, somebody noticed, like, like, wow, these British guns are really, really big, and they're really, really good. Uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that at the end here. Um, you know, things like stock markets, aggressive profit-seeking efforts. Uh, this meant that the powers that China was dealing with. They had consistently high motivation to carry off various ventures and expeditions. And so it's not like a country far away was going to say, eh, it's just, you know, some entrepreneur who happened to go around the world to see what he could do, and he came to a bad end in some far-flung foreign place. No, the things happening off the coast of China from a nation on the other side of the world, this was primary economic activity by that nation on the other side of the world. This was the the change that China was having to accept, to deal with, to, to grapple with. So, Let's get right into the meat of today's episode. Again, we're drawing directly from Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. And we're just going to dive into what Stephen Platt has. This is not a scholarly treatment of the ins and outs of the discussion, um, but we're going to look at you know why, why Chinese scholars would be strict on certain things, the kinds of considerations that would make them lenient, and what experience would moderate them in their viewpoints. Um, the kind of the the leading guy in our story today is a guy named Bao Shichun. Um, he lived from 1775 to 1885, so he would have lived through the first Opium War and may have seen either the beginning of or. A lot of the Second Opium War. Um, no, actually, the Second Opium War might have been after he died. Anyway, he was from rural Anhui province. This is inland, poor. Um, his father was a village school teacher, so he was kind of middle class ish. Um, Bao Shichun, uh sold vegetables to support his family, so he's not a stranger to hard work. He learned to read and write. He studied the the Confucian classics. Um, so he's he got an education, and he passed some of the levels of examination. Um, in 1808, in his early 30s, he passed the provincial examinations in Anhui's capital. 
and he tried 13 times to pass the national level exams in Beijing, but he couldn't do it. Uh, from what I know, those would happen every three years, so that means 39 years of trying. So, you know, in the travel from Anhui to Beijing, that would give him some travel experience. And in trying to keep up with all that, he would be continually studying. So this guy is no intellectual slouch. Maybe just because he couldn't pass the the top-level exam, that doesn't mean that he shouldn't have been... That's like, it's one of the things with uh, things like this. You, know, you, you can have a lot of smart people who wash out for one reason or another. Um, it's, it's like if you shut out all your science people for not being able to pass humanities exams. Um, and then you can have scientists who are still very well-versed in the humanities, but their main thing is science and engineering. You know, they got a PhD in building awesome things as opposed to you know, the, the finer abstruse points of the poetry of John Donne. Um, anyway, um, so from, his er from an early age, he was absorbed in current affairs. So in a letter quoted by Stephen Platt that Bao Shichun wrote to a friend, he wrote, I was born in the Tianlong reign, and by the time I was a young student, everything was falling apart. Bribery was pervasive and open, the administration was contaminated and vile, and the people's energy was taut like a spring, like tight, like ready to snap, as if there might be a rebellion. And so we, we see, actually, a lot of this go into the Taiping Rebellion, um, but that's for another episode. Um, where a lot of his attention went was into things like agriculture, law, the arts of war, so it's called statecraft scholarship. I, I think I I don't know what it is in Chinese. There's some term for it. There was kind of an informal side project of Confucian scholars looking at practical problems in administration and policy, where you had guys looking up from the works of Confucius and scholars in his tradition and looking at, you know things going on in the present. And we'll, uh, some of the other guys who are going to come up in our account today will look at some of the other problems that they were looking at. You know, he, he wrote articles that inspired scholars not directly in government, and so he had a huge uh, influence downstream of other, you know, other people who picked up his ideas and they worked and they got jobs working for high-level academics and scholars and officials. His inspiration was a guy named Hong Liangji, uh, 30 years older than him. Uh, Hong Liangji was sentenced to death, then pardoned by the emperor in 1799, after he wrote a long letter to the emperor calling for reform and the punishment of an official named He Shen. He Shen is somebody who is known for being very corrupt. He was very you could kind of compare him in English history to Cardinal Wolsey under uh, Henry VIII, um, maybe even somebody like Cardinal Richelieu uh, in France, you know, somebody who was very powerful, um, maybe not as competent as Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu. Maybe Cardinal Wolsey is, the, is a better comparison. Uh, 
He Shun was the chief official in charge of receiving the McCartney expedition, so some of the, you know, when that went went badly, some of that might, you know, we could conjecture that uh, He Shun might have been to blame for that. Um, so he is coming in a long tradition of Confucian scholars appealing to government to re, to reform errors, even to correct the emperor when that was necessary. So you can clearly see in Confucian scholarship there's an appeal to a moral standard above everyone. So it you know, there's something out there other than whether the emperor looks good, out there other than whether they're winning, there are standards that people should be following. Um, the pardoning of Hong Liangji marked a marked more openness under the manchus the 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 qing dynasty were you know were manchus from northeast china um for han scholars to organize discussion um, so like one thing we'll have to pay attention to is the marginal intelligentsia so one guy is like the guy at the heart of the taiping rebellion uh he was one of these guys who was very well educated but he just couldn't pass the exams and when you get to the communist rebellion later, the the uh, the, the communist revolution later, you know, people like Mao Zedong were well educated, or at any at any rate very well read. Um, so it, it's not like there's, you know, it, it's not like there are. Yeah, so, so you've got all these smart people running around without an official place for them to be. Uh, so how things... Let's look at how change started to take root. So reform-minded scholars did not themselves become high officials. Um, so as we see with the people in, uh, influenced by Bao Shichun, you know, they would get jobs as assistants to high officials, and they exerted a collective influence and by the 1820s, they were focusing on issues like food supply, grain transport, water control systems, monetary reform, and other issues of national importance. So they're, they're looking out, and it's not just about whether the emperor is virtuous, but is grain in one place getting moved to another place where it's necessary is, you know, is the money working? Is it expressing real value? Let's look at some characteristics of Bao Shi Chen. Like, so, if, uh, one of the, so two of the two of his qualities: he was nativist and he was conservative. So, whatever he's proposing, he's all about China, and he's not about just changing everything for the sake of change. He's from China's interior, so he's not seeing British ships rolling up off the coast of Canton there. Uh, Anhui is a poor inland province. That's a place I never got to, though I had students from there from time to time. Um, Bao Shichun condemned opium consumption as part of a broader attack on, de on a demand for luxuries. He really emphasized the prioritization of things like growing food over cash crops like tobacco uh, or grain set aside for alcohol. Um, opium was a path for international vulnerability, 
uh, in his perspective, that it it was bleeding silver out of China, that just this trade on the side, it wasn't officially regulated, you know, because it was officially prohibited. So silver is just going out, and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, he in in the beginning he was calling for things like a hard closure against foreign trade and you know some people who followed his views also called for a hard condemnation of foreign imports foreign luxuries um, after his experience of foreigners in 1826 he worked in the hoppo's office the like one of the uh, officials in charge of trade with foreigners in Canton, he moderated his views on foreign trade and dealings with foreigners. So one of the things we're going to see here is when officials have experience with foreigners, they're going to like turn it down a bit. Like I worked for two years in Chinese state media. So I, I had personal friends who were members of the Communist Party. So I, I can't just call, you know, the, these people like, you know, unthinking machines, you know, things like that. I I have seen their, you know, very, you know, sen sensitive, intelligent people. And they're, they're you know, so they're, they're not just, they're just going to work. They're just doing things. They're very, very human. I, some, I've met some of their children. I've, so when you meet the people who you may oppose, you know, you, you don't call for the hard treatment without some reservation. Um, you you see you also see the side realities, and we're about to we're about to get into that right here. Um, so one guy who had over twenty years in Canton was Chung Hanjiang. Uh, he had there twenty years. And more, he spent some time as a provincial governor, so he would have seen a lot, like a lot of the big picture stuff. He agreed with Bao Shi Chen about what some of the threats were, like especially the loss of silver. But his his ideas for how to respond were different. Like he proposed like direct exchange of goods. So instead of like spending silver, okay, direct trade with foreigners to get their cotton and wool textiles, their metals like copper and tin you know, medicine and other products, like like a lot of the mineral extraction going on in China, that is possible today because of, one, a unified government that is keeping law and order in all parts of the country, and two, modern extraction technology allowing new areas to be opened up. So, like, because of modern logistics, you can feed 10,000 guys to be at a mine in the middle of nowhere, um, whereas before this would not be so easy to do. Um, opium was the chief exception to, you know, to, to his idea for you know, moderating foreign trade, because that was the main thing, draining silver out of China. Um, for him, a hard shutdown of foreign trade was simply impossible. China, one, wasn't strong enough to do that, and two, he didn't want to provoke foreigners to unite and strike against China. So it's like, okay, the, the situation can be managed more to China's favor, but these foreigners are really, really powerful, and we don't want to get hit. Um, the, the, the last thing we're going to talk about today is a treatise uh, 
by a friend of Bao Shichun. Um, Catholic missionaries, other missionaries going to China, seeing what they could do, they would write things. They would send it back to Europe. Europe wanted to know about China. Um, there wasn't the same curiosity in China about the external world, but there were some exceptions. Um, so the the friend of Bao Chun was a geographer named Xiao Lingyu, and he was focusing on Britain and because they were one of the more powerful nations that China was encountering there in Canton. He worked in customs in Canton, um, and he gathered information about Britain for and their interactions with China for an 1832 treatise. He did research in local archives. He did personal interviews. He got accounts by other scholars. Um, and so his his treatise included things like detailed information about British ships seen in Canton, like their armaments, like how many cannon, uh, also the, the nature of the guns, uh, flintlock cannons much better than matchlock. So instead of having to light a fuse and deal with that, keep it going, you know, there's just a you know piece of flint striking steel, there, there goes your spark, there goes your gunpowder. Much more reliable, much more you know, tolerant of difficult conditions, um, and just how good the British artillery was. Um, if you know anything about the 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 British Navy, like it was the branch of the armed services that guaranteed um, British survival and indeed supremacy. Um, that they were always training, always drilling, even against. So for an 1832 treatise, okay, you're looking at the navy that has gone through the French Revolutionary Wars, defeated Napoleon, um, whatever else came up in the 1820s, the continual, uh, you know, continuous fighting, and the navy being the key branch of the services you know, supporting British supremacy. How many soldiers they'd have aboard their ships, their navigational capacities, how they'd sail. Um, one of the interesting points is the coppering of the bottoms of British ships. Um, that was something developed by Samuel Pepys, P-E-P-Y-S. Um, it, it made them slightly faster, and it r seriously reduced the rotting of the wood in ships. Uh, that really... Like, so all these little details, um, the nature of the British interest in trade and profit versus the Qing emphasis on security ending, you know, ending threats to the borders. Like, so part of why the Qing limited foreign trade to Canton was it's about controlling the empire. It's about keeping peace. It's about keeping order. Whereas the British are trying to expand to other ports because they've got a lot of trade to do and they really want to make it happen. Yeah, you know, it's okay. They can roll up on any uh, on on any stretch of coastline that you'd care to designate. They've got a lot more trading they'd like to do. And one thing that uh, what's okay, what's this what's this guy's name again? Yeah, Xiao Ling Yu. One thing that Xiao Ling Yu. Uh, 
uh, noted was the acquisition of Singapore by the British. So that, that gave them a major port much closer to China from which to coordinate anything that they were going to do with China. His accounts of life in Britain were not so great, but I don't know, what are you going to do? Uh, you, you, you write what you can. Um, but and then about opium, his, his point was that it's mostly a domestic China problem that the trade in textiles with foreigners had been happening for many decades. And though the British were not blameless, his main thing was you do not want to underestimate their military strength. He, as I just detailed, he went over in considerable detail a lot of the facts about their naval forces, which were going to be the main forces used in the Opium War. Um, he reviewed the trade with Britain, exchange with Britain, the James Flint expedition in 1759, the imprisonment of James Flint in 1760, the review of the McCartney mission in 1793, the 1808 Drury expedition, no, invasion of Macau, um, the Amherst diplomatic expedition in 1817. Um, his main conclusion was that trade was the main weapon that could be used to bring foreigners in line. You know, foreign traders wouldn't do anything to jeopardize their trade, um, that that the trade with China was so valuable to them that they'd figure out whatever it would do to settle any disputes. And Stephen Platt, his last sentence of that chapter is, there is no reason he should ever have thought otherwise. So Xiaolingyu, if his observations had been followed, if maybe somebody could have done something to, you know, feed the foreigners' demands, and without the Qing having to be defeated, maybe something could have been avoided, but the main thing is like he's, he's you know, something's going to get missed. So my questions as I, you know, as we end this episode is like, are you trying to predict the future with a treatise like this? You know, it's good to lay out probabilities, like, so even if the British disappear, even if they go away, maybe others will come, like, you know, the, okay, you know, it's, when you see new things from other countries, I mean, the first thing you might think is, okay, they do things differently, they make things out of different materials over there, because that's what they have over there. It's hard to guess where industrial economies get their stuff without seeing the whole supply chain, without understanding the big picture. Like some uh, some economist used a used a pencil as an exam as an example of economic cooperation around the world by even people who might want to kill each other. It's like how do you get a pencil without having all these different processes? So you know you could kind of forgive them for not being able to see that there might be more where that came from, or where the, where all these British ships are coming from. You know, okay, so with a treatise, like, are you trying to recommend certain actions? You know, some of that, certainly, that's why you write a treatise. It's like, this isn't just an academic book writing about the British just because it's fun. Are you just trying to tell how it is? So what do you get for just telling how it is? Um, the book that we're following for 
for a lot of this. Um, he's Stephen Platt is building up to the Opium War. We'll be coming back to other Stephen Platt works, covering some of the other uh, periods that we'll be talking about. But we're uh, going to part with him for the next mm, two weeks or so, um, because we're mainly building up to the Taiping Rebellion, and next week we're going to start two weeks on Protestant missionary efforts in China, and how that fueled the ideological basis for the Taiping Rebellion. Um, things coming in from the outside, taken by local Chinese, and turned in some very, very interesting ways. Um, this, and again, this has been Nathan Bennett for the Chinese Revolutions podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to join the Substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com, please do send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.